Well, good morning, Hellos Church. Uh, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of, of the scriptures this morning as we talk about this idea of grace and marriage. And uh, I met my wife, Kim, my now wife, I met her in, uh, towards the end of the summer of 2004. Not long after meeting her, I wanted to uh, get to know her. And so I called her up one day to figure out where a coffee shop was that she had told me about in the town that we were living in at the time. And, and uh, she described it to me, told, it, told me where it was. And I'd called her, not only wanted, getting directions was just my excuse. I, I really wanted her to join me at the coffee shop, but I couldn't work up enough nerve to ask her to, to meet me there, to go with me. But fortunately, Kim uh, kind of read the moment, and she uh, invited herself. And so uh, <laughs> technically, uh, Kim asked me out on our first date. Uh, which, was, which was great. All right, it wasn't really a date. It was more of a quasi-date as we uh, sat at this coffee shop. The, now, I have confessed this since then, but I actually knew where that coffee shop was long before I called her. I had been there multiple times before, so uh, I've confessed. I've repented of my deception in that moment, but uh, we got, started getting to know each other in that moment. Uh, our first real date came uh, not too long after that, where we uh, went ice skating and had a great time doing that. Then we went to the exotic restaurant known as P.F. Chang's and shared uh, a meal at their bistro. And, and after P.F. Chang's, that's when we had a slice of uh, cheese cake from the Cheesecake Factory. It was a rich, rich time. And six months later, I proposed. Uh, six months later, we were married. And uh, coming up in July, July 23rd of this year, we will have been married 14 years. Uh, now, we're really excited to have had this time together, and we pray for many more years together. And and um, over the course of those 14 years, we've only missed one anniversary, so I think we're doing pretty good. If we were going by baseball measures, we're, we're batting Hall of Fame numbers, you know, to only miss one out of 14 years. But uh, now we're doing a whole lot better, remembering those and celebrating our anniversary each, each year. So having been married almost 14 years now, my wife and I have been married just long enough to, to learn some things about marriage. We feel like we've learned some things, but at the same time, we've been married just long enough to not be very confident in any of the things that we've learned. And so it's one of those awkward stages where there are many uh, married people in this church who have far more wisdom and far more uh, grace to give in the direction of marriage than perhaps I do at this point in time. But the one thing all of us have in common right now is, is the scriptures. And we have a passage being presented to us this morning that lays out uh, God's design for marriage as well as kind of our duties and our responsibilities in marriage. And as we look at God's design for marriage and as we look at kind of our duties and our responsibilities in marriage, I hope and I pray that this will create a sense of desperation in each and every one of you, uh, because you're going to find that you uh, do not do a great job living according to God's design, and perhaps you do not discharge your duties and your responsibilities in a way that, that God intends for you to. And so my hope is to paint a picture that causes you uh, to humble yourself before the grace of God and say, Lord, I cannot be the husband or the wife that you have called me to be apart from your grace, so that you begin to look to the gospel and you begin to look to the Holy Spirit to provide you with these, what you need to live and to love, to lead and to serve, to honor and to um, showcase the beauty of God's grace in 
your marital relationship. And if you are not married among us, don't check out because uh, perhaps you have a desire for marriage. And if you have a desire for marriage, let this text serve your approach to that whole idea. Let this passage get put lens on your eyes so that you can see marriage the way God has designed it and the way God intends for marriage to be engaged. If you are single among us and maybe you have no desire for marriage, I want to encourage you this morning that though we will talk about marriage as a sacred gift from God, I want you to know that in saying marriage is sacred, that does not mean singleness is not. Uh, Just as we said last week, as we live under the resurrection of King Jesus, as he rules and reigns over all of reality, as we submit to that, we recognize that all of life is sacred. But when we say that all of life is sacred, that doesn't mean all of life is the same. And so marriage, yes, is a sacred gift from God, as you will see here in a moment. But so is singleness. They're not sacred in the same ways, but they are both sacred. And I would remind you that Jesus, our Savior, lived as a single man all his days. And he advanced the kingdom of God more than anyone else in the world. Uh, You think about the Apostle Paul who lived and engaged his ministry as a single man, making much of Jesus, planting churches, writing uh, two-thirds of the New Testament, being used by God in extraordinary ways. No one could ever look at Jesus or Paul and say, your life is incomplete because you are not married. And let it never be said in our faith family. Uh, Let it never be projected by us as married couples or as a faith family to suggest that singleness is is in a sense incomplete or singleness is, in a sense, not uh, fully arriving in this life because nothing could be further from the truth, especially when you think about Jesus, especially when you think about Paul. And I would encourage single people to sit with a passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for example. Just sit and reflect upon the, the nobility and the sacredness of singleness as a gift to you to make much of Jesus for as long as you were in that state until things change in God's providence. You are living in a sacred blessed state that is fully, that the gospel is fully sufficient for. And so I just want to encourage you with that this morning before we jump in to Ephesians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to this passage that was read for us a moment ago, Ephesians chapter 5. And as we just kind of work our way towards this kind of the last stretch of the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul has turned his attention where he's focusing in on what's called household dynamics. Uh, Household there refers, yes, to elements in the home as it relates to marriage and parenting, but it also relates to uh, household as the family of God and dynamics that should be present in how we relate to one another as followers of of Jesus. We saw last week at the end of the passage we looked at that we are to submit to one another in the fear of Christ, that there is mutual submission being given to one another in the church in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. So we want to honor Jesus, we want to revere Jesus, ultimately by embracing the roles that we have in whatever sphere of life that we are in. We want to embrace those roles and we want to engage those roles in ways that glorify Jesus and that tell the story of his grace in our lives and ultimately in and through the church. And so here, uh, beginning in verse 23, we are tied into or we begin to see just this whole passage, uh, God's design for marriage, and it's a beautiful design. Actually dropped all the way down to verse 31, and you're going to see a moment uh, in your Bibles It may be, these words may be in bold, or they may be set apart with quotations, but essentially verse 31, uh, Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And in so doing, he's reminding us that God's design for marriage is rooted in creation, that that's where it started. After God created 
the heavens and the earth and all that is in it, declaring it good. He then made his divine image bearers, human beings, created male and female. Well, before the female kind of stepped onto the scene, there was just the male, and, and God entrusted the male to rule over creation, to uh, care for creation. He had that responsibility given to him from God before the woman was given to him as a gift. But after the Lord took this moment, he had Adam, or the first man, name all the animals. And as he looked at all the creatures that God had made, he noticed that there was no uh, helper, no companion suitable for him. And that's when the Lord decided, um, or not decided in that moment, but he always intended to give man, uh, woman, to serve in a significant way in the role that they would have to reflect God's image in the world and to steward God's creation. And so you come to the end of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, after all of that goes down, where we read this verse, it's quoted in verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That in marriage, a man and a woman comes together to create something new and this dynamic is rooted in creation. So much so that when Jesus would talk about marriage in Matthew chapter 19, he goes all the way back to Eden as well. Anytime Jesus talks about marriage, anytime Paul talks about marriage, they always go to Eden believing that Eden provided the blueprint and the script for marriage in the world. And so they never look, say, to Abraham and see how he married many wives and said, okay, that's the example for us to follow. They never look to any other place in the scriptures to provide the blueprint for how marriage should be understood and engaged. Instead, they're always going back to Eden. And when you go back to Eden, you find a marriage between one man, one woman coming together to create something new, this one flesh commitment to one another. But not only is marriage rooted in creation, what, you, what I really want you to see as you look into verse 32 of this text is that it is reflective of redemption, that God designed marriage to reflect redemption. And here's what I mean by that. Verse 32, he says that this mystery is profound. It is mind-boggling. It is surprising. It is one that we would not expect or have thought up ourselves. He says the mystery of marriage is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. He's saying marriage is designed by God to reflect redemption, that it is designed to project the relationship shared between Christ and his church. We have to get this if we're going to understand God's design for marriage and if we're going to understand why we believe marriage to be a sacred, special gift from God, that it is to reflect redemption. This means that marriage is not to be thought of as a social construct. This means when we think about our definitions of marriage and our understandings of marriage, we do not work from the culture up. No, we work from heaven down. It means we go all the way back to creation and we see what God intended. Then we trace that thread all the way to redemption and we see Christ interplaying with the church and the church interplaying with Christ. And there we see what marriage is all about and what it was designed to do. And so we hold that in our thinking because marriage is not a social construct, if we ever reduce marriage to that, we will be reducing God's design in a way that is damaging to all. You see, if you get married under the assumption that marriage is simply a social contract, before you get married, you're going to engage in a cost-benefit analysis. And you're going to ask yourself, okay, what am I going to be, how am I going to benefit from this relationship? And you're going to step into that union in order to get and if you step into that union in order to get, you are not going to contribute to the health and vitality of that union. You see, if 
marriage is designed to reflect redemption. That means the husband and the wife, as they step into the relationship, they're doing so not just to get because they've conducted a cost-benefit analysis. They're stepping into that relationship in order to give. They're there to give love, to give service, to give honor, to contribute to the flourishing of the other as two people create a new life together, one that is so close that it could be called a one flesh union. It is an incredibly intimate dynamic. And so we don't ever want to reduce marriage to simply a social construct because when we do, we sully God's design of it. Marriage is never to be thought of as a social construct. Marriage is always to be thought of as a sacred covenant. That this is our understanding of marriage. There is covenantal language used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. There is covenantal language used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And there is covenantal language used here in Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is a sacred covenant. It is a unique relationship unlike any other relationship that can be shared between two human beings. Consider what Tim Keller said about uh, the idea of marriage as covenant when he says in a covenant... The good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. The good of the relationship takes precedent over the immediate needs of the individual. If you are single and you are wanting to get married, but you can't get over your immediate needs, you are not ready to get married. You should put the brakes on that whole process. If you are more concerned with your immediate needs as a man or your immediate needs as a woman and you're not ready to check those for the sake of the relational needs that you will share with your spouse, you are not ready to get married. But if you've come to a point where God's grace is at work in your heart and, and you are saying, okay, I'm ready to commit to something bigger than me. I'm ready to commit to something outside of my immediate needs. And I'm going to say, look, I want to enter into a relationship where this new relationship I share with you, it will always take precedence. It will always trump the immediate needs I have as an individual. This is why sacrifice is required. This is why self-giving is required. This is why a marriage cannot thrive if you have two consumers stepping into the relationship. Two people getting into a relationship to say, okay, what can I get from it? If that is your approach, your marriage will not last. And your marriage certainly will not reflect redemption because redemption is all about self-giving love. And so you step into the relationship not so much saying, what can I get from this? You step into it saying, what can I give to this? How can I join this other person in creating something new where we're giving the world a picture of the gospel? So you want to think about the design of marriage in light of that. And as you do, then you jump into Ephesians chapter 5 and you really begin to explore kind of the duties of marriage or the responsibilities of marriage. How is husband and wife to project to the watching world a picture of grace, a picture of redemption? How is it to serve the purpose of the gospel? Now, this is where the passage gets challenging. This is where the passage can get hard because there's some language in this text that our culture does not like. And the biggest mistake we can make as followers of Jesus who believe in the scriptures is to take the definitions our culture has for things like headship or things like submission and project those onto the Bible. When we do that, we're going to distort what the Bible is saying and we're going to distort what God's good design and good's intention is for marriage. And so we never want to work backwards in that ways where we're projecting upon the scriptures our cultural definitions of terms. Instead, we want to allow the terms of the scriptures to be brought into our culture, to give shape to the church's understanding of what things like headship and submission mean and why they are beautiful realities designed by God to tell unique 
truths to the world. And so when you think about that, when you step into this passage, I want you to know that there are 40 words that are used to address the wife. But there are 114 words used to address the husband. I think the quantity of words in this text says something that, that's significant. You see, in the first century, it was very common for wives to uh, recognize that they, they, to believe that they were to submit to, them, to their husbands in some discernible way. There were a lot of people who taught that. There's a lot of writings coming out of the first century and out of the life of the early church outside of the Bible that would champion that cultural dynamic. But what's unique is that you're never going to find writings or we have not found any writings that speak to the husband and how the husband is to relate to the wife who is submitting to him. And this is why the Bible should blow our minds. This is why God's grace in the scriptures is good for us because here you have a moment where Paul is addressing marriage. And he knows the culture that he's in, and he takes 114 words to talk to the husband and to speak to how the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church, to speak to the husband and how the husband is to care for his wife as his own body, how the husband is to serve his wife as Christ serves the church. You're not going to find anything like that coming out of the first century or the fourth century. You're not going to find anything like what Paul is talking about here in this passage. And so you just want to keep that in mind because there are two there are two metaphors that are used to describe kind of the duties or the responsibilities of a husband and a wife in marriage. The first image there is found in verse 24. It's the image of head. It's the idea of headship saying the husband is the head of the wife. Now, when we hear that, we um, well, I'll just be honest, that the, the idea of head is never applied to a wife anywhere in the scriptures. It's just not there. It's only applied to the man, and it's only applied to the husband in the Bible. And so we want to think, okay, what does it mean for the husband to be the head of his wife? Does that mean that he is her authority? No. But it does mean that he is her loving leader, that he is the one who is responsible for the, the ultimate welfare and the ultimate flourishing of that relationship. When you consider this idea of head, part of the reason why it is applied in this text is because in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, Adam came first, and he was entrusted with the responsibilities of caring for creation. And so he was the head in that regard. And in fact, how well he discharged that duty would contribute to how well the world would flourish. But of course, he blows it when the, he allowed the serpent to come in and deceive Eve in, in that conversation, and everything went sideways, everything went haywire. He wasn't a good head in that moment. In fact, when the fall happened, and the woman or the wife was being tempted, Adam was standing there with, him, with her, but he wasn't speaking up. He wasn't being a loving leader. He wasn't intervening in that moment to protect his wife from the half-truths that were being spit by the serpent and even being regurgitated by the wife. He did not step up. He did not serve as head in that moment, and things went south really, really fast. And then when you get to the New Testament and the New Testament writers begin to talk about, okay, who's ultimately culpable for the fall? You realize that they trace it not back to Eve ordinarily. They trace it back to Adam. And we are told in Romans chapter 5 that sin came in through one man's disobedience. In other words, Adam as head was, was held responsible for what happened when Eve was deceived. So when you think about what it means for the man to be head to be head of the home, to be head of the marital relationship. It means that you, gentlemen, are ultimately responsible 
to God for the flourishing of your family. That your family's spiritual vitality depends upon your willingness to embrace your role as head, not in terms of authority, but in terms of accountability. That you are accountable for how well your family flourishes in this world in light of the grace it wants to God, that God wants to pour out into your life and that God wants to unleash through your life as head. Now, the other word that's used to speak to the uh, to the woman's role in the relationship doesn't show up in Ephesians chapter 5. It's kind of described with some of this, but it pops up most clearly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, there's this moment again where uh, out of all the creatures in the world, um, there was no helper suitable to join man in the mission of serving God in the world and stewarding creation. Check it out, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God, Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. I love that language. So you have the word helper here used of the woman. But notice it is a helper that is corresponding to the man. That word corresponding literally translates like opposite. Meaning the male and the female in creation were both created in a similar way with similar value. But at the same time, they were quite different. They were opposites. They were like opposites. You might think of a puzzle piece or two pieces of a puzzle. If every piece of a puzzle were the same, they would be able to stack on top of one another really well, but they're not going to present a picture to anyone. In order for a puzzle to present a picture to observers and to onlookers, you have to have like opposites. And then you take these like opposite pieces and you put them together and when you put them together they reflect an image they reflect a vision they reflect something dynamic to those who are looking at it well when you think about the relationship between the head and the helper understand that the head and the helper come together and they fit uniquely together to present a picture to the world about who God is and what God is like it's interesting that the word helper shows up. The same word that's translated helper in Genesis 2.24 is also 2.18 is also used to describe God's role in relationship to his people. I'll give you two examples. Psalm 20, verse 2. May he, that is the Lord, send you help, same word, from the sanctuary and sustain you from Zion. Then Psalm chapter 121, verse 2, my help, same word, comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven. And, earth. and so what this means is to, to use the word helper, again, don't project upon it our cultural understanding that says helper is kind of an assistant, or helper is someone who's weaker than the head. That's not the case. God as helper comes to his people's aid, and he does things for his people that his people could not do for himself themselves. Therefore, a helper is someone who is strong. A helper is someone who is God-like. And so, wives, in your home, you are like God. You do things for the home that no one else can do. Gentlemen, you are like God in the sense that God is the head of the church, or Christ is the head of the church. You are to do things in the home that showcases something about who God is. And when you come together, you are projecting a wonderful picture, a robust picture of who God is and what God is like. And so, ladies, please don't see yourselves as being shortchanged with this idea of helper versus head because the two words both speak to dynamic realities of who God is and what God is like. Instead, we want to embrace these dynamics and engage them in ways that would serve God's purpose. Now, 
Again, the, these, these images can be distorted in a bunch of ways. One, one classic example was how Einstein approached marriage. Einstein knew the categories of head and helper, and he kind of took those into the marriage, but he took them in a direction that God never designed or intended. In fact, before he got married, he wrote out a list of expectations that he expected his wife to meet. Listen to his list. He said, I expect you to do the daily laundry and keep it in good order. He said, I expect three meals regularly to be brought to me in my room. He said, I expect a desk neatly maintained for my use only. He said, get this, I expect you to quit talking and to leave the room whenever I request it. No wonder they got divorced, right? That, that marriage was doomed to failure from the very beginning. Why? Because he took these categories and he distorted them. He twisted them. He did not understand them in light of what Paul is writing here in Ephesians chapter 5. When we look at what Paul is saying here, you're going to see, gentlemen, that husbands are to provide a picture of Christ to the world. And that's something Einstein never sought to do. Why? Because he sought to be served, not to serve. But it is something that any gospel-believing man who is in a marriage should seek to do, to show a picture of Christ to the world around you. And you do this in a few significant ways. One is by loving your wife sacrificially. By loving your wife sacrificially. Check out verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And gentlemen, you are to be willing to lay your life down for the flourishing of your spouse. You are to sacrifice your schedule, if need be, to show attention to your bride. You need to sacrifice ambitions that may, all be, a, may be all about you and not about the relationship. You will sacrifice those in love to your wife. You are loving your wife sacrificially by following in the pattern of Jesus who laid down his life quite literally for the church. But not only do you love your wife sacrificially, husbands, you are to serve your wife constantly. Notice verse 26. He does this to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He's serving his wife constantly. Now, this is one of the most practical takeaways of this whole passage and one of the most practical responsibilities for a husband in a marriage that you are to outserve your wife. You are to outserve her because Jesus always outserves the church. No Christian, no church will ever do more for Jesus than Jesus has done for them. And so, husbands, the challenge and the charge of this passage, your responsibility is to serve your wife constantly. Your calling is to outserve her the way Jesus outserves the church. And so if you come home from work and all you do is lay on the couch and expect to be brought your expect everything to be done for you in that moment and and you're demanding it, then you are not discharging your duty as head and you are not loving your wife as Christ loves the church. You are not serving your wife constantly. But notice the direction of this service, that one of the reasons why we're told that Christ serves the church is because he's cleansing her, he's washing her by the water of the word. In other words, Jesus is serving the church's holiness. He's serving the church's spiritual formation. So again, gentlemen, are you serving your wife in a way that helps her grow into the image of Christ? Are you contributing to her spiritual formation? Are you helping her mature in her faith and how you are serving her and how you are leading her, how you are loving her? 
you want to consider this because in many homes, I find in my experience that in a, a lot of homes, women tend to be the spiritual leaders of the relationship and of the family. And they step up because they perceive a void. They step up because they perceive a vacancy in leadership on that front because the husband isn't stepping up. The husband isn't embracing his role and his responsibility to out to serve his bride constantly and namely to serve her and their family's spiritual formation. And so a lot of ladies step up. And ladies, if that's you, you are to be commended. You are to be commended for not allowing your family to flounder spiritually. But by continuing a spiritual focus in the home, you are to be commended. But gentlemen, you are to be rebuked. You are to be called out. Because that responsibility should not fall heavily upon your wife's shoulders. That responsibility should fall on yours. As the head, you will be held accountable for how well you are leading and loving and serving your family. Not just in everything generically, but specifically in how you're leading and loving your family towards Jesus. And so every husband... Every father should be the pastor of his home. And so you want to embrace that role. Don't abdicate it the way Ab Adam abdicated it in Eden. But then the third dynamic is you are to care for your wife unconditionally. Look at verse 28. It says, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I don't know a single man who, who's not, who doesn't take care of himself. And I don't know a single man who doesn't take care of himself no matter what changes about him. Well, Paul's drawing the same analogy, saying, I want you to love your wife the way you love yourself. You're, you're always caring for yourself. Now I want you to care for your wife as if she is you because y'all are one flesh. And so he's getting to this idea of caring for your wife unconditionally because this means, husbands, you are to love and care for your wife no matter what changes. No matter what changes in the home, no matter what changes in the relationship, no matter what changes happen to your wife, you are caring for her unconditionally. God forbid your wife comes down with some physical disability that renders them in it, unable to tend to your needs and unable to, to do things for you that she once did. If that were to happen, that doesn't mean you abdicate your responsibility. It doesn't mean you pull out of the relationship and start looking for another one that where there's another woman who can tend to your needs. No, you are to be faithful and devoted to your wife the way Christ is faithful and devoted to the church. And so you care for your bride unconditionally. No matter what changes, you maintain focus. You maintain fidelity. You maintain commitment to the care of your bride. And as you love and serve and care in these ways, you provide a picture of Christ to the world. What better purpose is there for you to live by? What better goal is there for you to attain than the goal of projecting Christ to the world around you? It is a noble thing to be a husband. But then you also look at the passage. Not only are husbands to provide a picture of Christ to the world, wives we see are to provide a picture of the church to the world. This is where Paul begins the passage. Verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, we don't want to press that too far because we know that husbands are not saviors. Uh, there is only one savior of the church, and that is Jesus. So don't press this comparison or this analogy too far. It will break down, and it should break down because, ladies, if you're looking to your husbands to be your saviors, you're looking to the wrong person. 
and you will be utterly dissatisfied with your marriage and you will be utterly disappointed by your husband if you're looking to him to be what Jesus already is for you. So you want to think about that. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands. So the way we're told in this passage that wives provide a picture of the church to the world is by submitting to your husband's headship. And another way of saying that is by following your husband's loving leadership, by deferring to his loving leadership in the home. That's one of the ways in which you are submitting to him. Now, one of the things that makes this easy for wives, husbands, is you got to know that a well-functioning head has two ears, right? This means that you are not to just call the shots without seeking any input from your bride. This means you are to listen to their desires. You are to listen to their needs. You are to listen to their wants. You are to take their counsel, take their advice, as you know that your wife is more competent and more gifted in areas than you are. And so you want to be wise in looking and to learn and to be wise to inviting their contributions to various things because a well-functioning head has two ears and they listen well. And so you're going to find that as you are listening and as you're seeking to love sacrificially, to care unconditionally, to serve constantly, your wife will gladly submit to your leadership. I've yet to meet a woman who is loved the way Jesus loves by their, her husband who bucks at their leadership or bucks at their headship. I, I see glad submission every time I see a man aspiring to love and to care and to serve like Jesus. And so, ladies, you are called in this passage, if you're a wife, to submit to your husband's headship. Now, it's, there's a lot of qualifiers here to take into consideration. You are not to submit to any man in the church. That's not your calling. You're to submit to your own husband. You're to follow your own husband's loving leadership. And no man in this church or any other church should ever seek to uh, take this dynamic of submission and male-female interactions and use it in an abusive, oppressive way. But then we also want to say that uh, this does not mean that you are to submit to your husband in unbelief or that you are to submit to your husband in abuse. You are to submit to your husband's loving leadership, Christ-like leadership. There is a qualified submission here. And so if your husband is abusing you, do not submit to that abuse. Seek help, seek counsel, escape, go to safety, look for help from the church and from other places. And you also don't submit to their leadership if they are leading you away from Jesus. Understand that this submission is a submission uh, to your husband as unto the Lord, as unto Christ. And so if your husband tries to lead you away from faith, you, you don't follow him in that direction. You continue to love him and to serve him as you are able, but you don't bail on, on the faith. But in addition to this, not only do we told here to submit to your husband's headship, wives are also encouraged to honor your husband above anyone else. This is where the passage ends in verse 33. To sum up, each one of you, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect or honor her husband. And so this gets after. How do you present a picture of the church to the world? Well, you do that when you're honoring, you're honoring your husband above anyone else. That includes your parents, and that also includes your children. Sometimes marriages meet, hit hard spots when kids start coming into the family because all the attention goes to them. And we know that in the early days, they require a lot of attention. They require a lot of care. But wives, you must understand that you're, that your, your attentiveness to your husband must not be usurped completely and entirely by your kids. 
that you are to honor your husband above any other person. You're to be more devoted to him than to any other person, more attentive to him than to any other person, the way the church is to be more attentive to Jesus than to any other person in the universe. This is how the church honors Jesus. We honor Jesus through our devotion to Jesus. We honor Jesus through our commitment to Jesus. And so, ladies, you're encouraged in this passage to consider how you can honor your husband above anyone else. There's a wonderful picture of this. It comes from a guy named E.V. Hill. E.V. Hill was an African-American pastor back in the day. He was a tremendous, tremendous minister of God's word. And, and uh, he died a few years back. But before he died, he lost his wife to cancer. And he preached his wife's funeral. And when he preached his wife's funeral, he, he tells a story that I want to share with you because I think it illustrates these dynamics really well. He says, you know, as a young preacher, I was struggling. I was struggling to earn a living, and I came home one night and said, and, and I found the house dark. I opened the door, I walked in, uh, saw my wife Jane there, and she had prepared a candlelight dinner for us to enjoy. So I was happy about that, so I walked in and, and uh, said to her, well, let me go wash up. So I went into the bathroom, and I flicked the switch, but the light didn't come on. And so he thought, well, maybe the light's blown. So he walked out of the bathroom into the hallway and, and flipped the switch on there, but still no light came on. And so he went into the kitchen and he asked his wife why the power wasn't coming on when he flipped switches. And, and this is what she said. She began to cry and said, well, you worked so hard and we're trying, but it's pretty rough. I didn't have enough money to pay the light bill. I just didn't want you to know about it. So I thought we would just eat by candlelight. And then he concluded that illustration by saying, she could have said, I've never been in this situation before. She could have said, I was raised in the home of a doctor, and we never had our lights go off. She could have broken my spirit. She could have ruined me. She could have demoralized me. But instead, she said, somehow or other, we'll get these lights back on, but tonight we eat by candlelight. A wonderful picture of a wife honoring her husband even when it's hard. A wonderful picture of a wife who's submitting to her husband's leadership even when things in the home aren't lighting up the way that they should. It's a beautiful picture of this, of what Paul is calling for here, of wives providing a picture of the church to the world by submitting and by honoring. Now you think about these truths, and, and this drives us to a sense of desperation, I hope. My, my hope is for you husbands to feel very burdened by this text right now. And quite honestly, wives, my hope is for you to feel burdened by this passage right now, to see God's design, to think a little bit about the responsibilities you have in the relationship so that you are brought to the point where you're saying, I cannot do this, where you are brought to a point of desperation. And the reason why you feel this desperation is because you are a sinner, because you are frail, because you are imperfect. The problem with marriage is that you have two sinners stepping into it. You have a sinful man and a sinful woman stepping into this unique relationship that's designed to reflect redemption, and you're wondering, how is that possible? And so marriage is hard because you have two sinners engaging in these dynamics, and when sin's involved, our understanding of headship and helper all gets distorted, it all gets damaged. But then you add onto that not only just the sin of the people who are involved in the marriage, but you also add to the fact that there is, a, there is spiritual opposition to the vitality of the marriage as well. You see this in Ephesians as you keep reading through this book. You're going to come to chapter 6, and there Paul is going to take up this issue of spiritual warfare. And listen to what he says in, verse, in chapter 6, verse, 11, verse 2, I believe. He says, I'm sorry, verse 11, he says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against, here it is, the schemes of the devil. 
He's saying the devil is scheming against the church, and one of the ways that he schemes is against marriages within the church. That the devil is scheming to get you two against each other rather than to be for each other. The devil is scheming to exaggerate your understanding of headship and to exaggerate your understanding of what it means to be helper because he doesn't want the two of you to reflect to the world a picture of the gospel. So he's scheming. So you have two things going against you in your marriage, and this is why marriage is hard. You're a sinner, and then there's spiritual opposition to you as a married couple. You might think of the relationship between your sin and Satan this way. Uh, Satan's kind of like Dana White for the UFC. In the UFC, he's, a, he's the promoter for Ultimate Fighting Championships. And so he gets fighters in the octagon, and he promotes the fight. He encourages the fight. He markets the fight so that they can get in and just beat each other up. Well, this is what Satan does in our marriages. He promotes fights among us. He promotes animosity between us. He promotes uh, antagonism between us. And he's just wanting us to fight so that we're more focused on what's wrong with the other than what's right about Jesus and the relationship. And so in this desperation, what happens, you begin to think about how you are not able to carry out these duties and you are not able to engage God's design apart from grace. And you begin to plead for God's grace to come and to help you. And there are two forms of grace that you see in the passage that I want to encourage you with to kind of lift the burden that you feel and to energize your approach into these two areas of your relationship. First, I want you to see that you need the grace of the Savior's service. If you're going to be the husband and the wife that God has called you to be, if your marriage is going to thrive, you need the grace of the Savior's service. Jump back up to verse 26. It says that Jesus uh, loved this way to make her, the church, holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. He's saying Jesus is serving the church so that the church becomes beautiful people. And recognize husbands and recognize wives that you are a part of that church. You are a part of that process. You are being served so that Jesus is making you into a beautiful people so that you can become a beautiful husband and a beautiful bride who's reflecting the dynamics of the gospel. Now, the language in that passage is drawn from the Old Testament, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 16 there's a moment where the Lord is talking about his people and how he's going to serve them, how he's going to marry them, how he's going to transform them. And just listen to the language of this passage because it is, it is a beautiful description of how the Lord serves his people. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. It says, Then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age for love. Now, just before this passage... Israel is depicted as a sin-stricken, suffering people. They are broken and bloody. They're like, they're laid out on the street just in a very devastating situation. And yet the Lord passed by while they were there and he says, you're ready. Yeah, you're in the age of love. You need my love and I'm, I'm going to give my love to you. And then he goes on. He says, so I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord God, and you, you became mine. You see, before you belong to one another, Christian, you belong to the Lord. Before you are a husband, you are a disciple. Before you are a wife, you are a daughter of God. You have to understand that order. Then he goes on, I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and provided you with fine leather sandals. I also wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with jewelry, putting bracelets on your wrists and a necklace around your neck. 
I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was made with fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. You became extremely beautiful and attained royalty. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. And so when Paul's talking about marriage, he's drawing language from that text and he's applying it, saying what we need in our marriages is the grace of the Savior's surface, uh, service where he can take a broken, battered man and a broken, battered woman and put them together, making them something beautiful by his grace. This means when you become a Christian, your need for the gospel does not end in that moment. It means as you live the Christian life, you are in need of the Savior's service constantly, taking the gospel in, thinking the gospel through, turning the gospel out in your relationships with one another, specifically the relationship shared between husband and wife. It should encourage you to know that Jesus is serving the church and he's still cleansing us and making us new. He's still turning us into beautiful people. So we need that grace, but then there's a second grace available to us. Not only need the grace of the Savior's service, we need the grace of the Spirit's presence. The grace of the Spirit's presence. To see this, you come back to Ephesians 5, you jump all the way up to verse 18. Because everything that Paul is talking about regarding husbands and wives is flowing out of the passage that just came before this. And notice what is said in verse 18. He tells the church, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with with the Spirit. You know, when marriage gets hard, many people turn to the bottle, and he's saying, no, when marriage gets hard, you turn to the Spirit. You need the Spirit of God. You need His presence energizing you, enabling you, and empowering you to become the husband and to become the wife God has called you to be. And so you need the grace of the Savior's service, but you also need the grace of the Spirit's presence because you cannot... You cannot cooperate with God's design and you cannot carry out God, the, the duties that God has given to a married man and a married woman in that relationship. You cannot do it in and of yourself. You have to come to an end of yourself. You have to be willing to humble yourself, to repent of your sin, to trust in the gospel and to ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you up, enabling you every single day to live and to love and to serve and to be the husband and the wife God created and is recreating you to be. Let's take a moment right now and just ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes because I want to voice a prayer for the marriages in this room as well as future marriages that may take place in our faith family as well as just marriages all across the board. We want to pray for healthy marriages to be uh, apparent in our church. We want marriages that reflect Redemption. We want marriages to reflect God's design and that discharge God's duty, God's given duties in ways that would glorify him and honor him and lead us to flourish in, in ways that are helpful. So let me pray in that direction. Would you join me in that? Heavenly Father, would you give grace to our marriages? Would you give grace to the husband right now that feels utterly inadequate and ill-equipped to love and to serve and to care for his wife? Lord, would you give grace to the wife in the room right now who feels utterly inadequate and incapable of following her husband's loving leadership and 
in honoring her husband above anyone else in this world. I pray that you would give grace to that bride as well and that you would restore your design to the relationship and that you would reflect the beauty of your gospel and how they love and serve and honor each other. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would save them from their sin, that you would save them from the schemes of the enemy who would love to sully the picture of the gospel that they are to present to the world. Lord, I pray that for them. I pray that for every married couple in our faith family. Lord, let it be that you, that you determine our understanding of marriage and our approach to marriage. But God, as you determine that, would you also empower our approach? Would you help us to take your gospel in and to be ministered to by your grace? Would you give us grace to be filled with your spirit so that we might live in light of your power and your strength? Help us never to relocate our identity from being your child first and from being your people first to relocate that to being a husband or to relocate that to being a wife. God, let let our identity in Christ trump any other identity or role that we have in this life. But Lord, also let our identity in Christ give shape to how we approach any other role that we have in this world. And I pray specifically for husbands and wives that they would live out their identity in Christ as they pursue each other and as they relate to one another in ways that tell your story. God, would you work this within us because we need you to, and without you, we don't stand a chance. So God, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.